Welcome to LDS Perspectives Podcast, where we interview amazing LDS scholars about Mormon history, doctrine, and culture. This is Laura Harris-Hales, and I'm here today with Mark Asherst-McGee to talk about President Joseph has translated a portion, Joseph Smith and the Mistranslation of the Kinderhook Plates, a chapter he co-authored with Don Bradley in Producing Ancient Scripture Joseph Smith's Translation Projects in the Development of Mormon Christianity. Mark Ashers-McGee is a senior historian in the Church History Department and the senior research and review editor for the Joseph Smith Papers, where he also serves as a specialist in document analysis and documentary editing methodology. He holds a Ph.D. in history from Arizona State University and has trained at the Institute for the Editing of Historical Documents. He has co-edited several volumes of the Joseph Smith Papers and is also co-editor of Foundational Texts of Mormonism, Examining Major Early Sources. He's also the author of several articles on Joseph Smith and early Latter-day Saint history. Welcome, Mark. It has not been too long since we've sat down together. Good to be back. Thanks for having me again. Uh, Yeah, we actually intended to talk about your chapter on the Kinderhook Plates in our previous interview, but then we decided this is way too fun. We need to devote a whole episode to this. For those who may never have heard of the Kinderhook Plates, what are they? All right. Well, uh, it was in early 1843 when Joseph Smith translated a portion of the Kinderhook Plates. And these are a set of six small plates of brass, kind of bell-shaped, and each plate covered on both sides with mysterious inscriptions. And they've become known as the Kinderhook Plates because they were extracted from an Indian burial mound near the small village of Kinderhook in western Illinois. Kinderhook is about 70 miles downriver from Nauvoo, which was then the center of the Mormon gathering. Over the years since the publication of the Book of Mormon in 1830, Joseph Smith uh, had become well-known for his claim that he was led by a heavenly messenger to this ancient record inscribed on golden plates buried in New York and to have translated the record by means of a spiritual gift from God. And given the obvious similarity between the gold plates of the Book of Mormon and the brass plates from Kinderhook, the Kinderhook plates were brought to Joseph Smith. And he had them at his house for about a week and translated at least a part of them. According to William Clayton, who was Joseph Smith's private clerk, Smith had, quote, translated a portion, unquote, of the plates and said that they contained the history of the person with whom they were found, who was a descendant of Ham through the loins of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. About a week later, church apostle Parley P. Pratt wrote about the Kinderhook plates in a letter to a cousin. And according to Pratt, the plates contained the genealogy of one of the ancient Jaredites back to Ham, the son of Noah. Clayton mentions Pharaoh, and Pratt mentions the Jaredites, but they both say that the person with whom the plates were found was a descendant of Ham. The major problem in this episode is that it turns out that these plates were fake. They were forgeries. 
made by two men who lived at Kinderhook, who had them made and planted them in this Indian burial mound, and then led an unsuspecting party to dig them up. That's kind of the basic introduction to the Kinderhook plates. This was a hoax. Yes. When was the hoax revealed? Okay. Takes a while. And of course, we don't know everything about exactly who knew what and when things were told. But the hoax had been uh, at least partly revealed within a dozen years. Um, And there's a letter from someone uh, from 1855 about that. But this letter didn't really become publicized until many decades later, until the early 20th century. So the main revelation of the hoax actually happens when um, a man in Utah named James T. Cobb, he had anti-Mormon interests and was doing a lot of research on uh, things from the Joseph Smith period. And he got a hold of, uh, through correspondence, one of the men who was initially involved in uh, coming up with this hoax. And that man's name was Wilburn Fugit. And Wilburn Fugit wrote back to him in a letter and told him about how the whole thing happened. After that, with some coaching from James T. Cobb, Fugit had a, a notarized statement made that told about how this hoax went down. And he sent it to Cobb. Cobb shared it with an anti-Mormon author named Willem Ritter von Weimetal. And this was in the late 1870s over three decades after the fact. This notarized statement is eventually published by Y Metal in an anti-Mormon book in 1886. So it's really about four decades later that the hoax is revealed. Joseph Smith's been dead a while. Brigham Young is dead. In the United States right now, between the Mormons and the rest of the population, the big topic is polygamy. Right. And then this hoax comes out. Does it get much notice? Do people care? Do they react? Do they say, aha, we've proven that Mormonism is false, Joseph is a false prophet? What happened? Yeah, you're absolutely right. Of course, polygamy is the huge uh, issue with, with Mormonism in the public and in the press and in critical literature. The Kinderhook Plates, when it does get published in this book, the book seems to be somewhat prominent in anti-Mormon literature, and people do latch on to this because of the obvious similarity with the Golden Plates, right? And we don't have the Golden Plates, so we can't test Joseph Smith's prophethood there. But with the Kinderhook Plates, you have another set of metal plates, and then you have Joseph Smith performing at least some translation, and then they turn out to be fraudulent. This does become very popular in anti-Mormon literature and gets repeated over and over again. Before too long, an anti-Mormon coins the phrase, only a bogus prophet translates bogus plates. And that becomes the catchphrase that's repeated over and over and over again in anti-Mormon literature. So it does gain some traction there. The Latter-day Saints, for their part, they basically dispute the veracity of Fugit's story that this had been a hoax. For the most part, Latter-day Saints insist that Fugit must be lying about this just in order to try to make Joseph Smith look bad. And Latter-day Saints will insist that the Kinder Plates actually are authentic, that they're not bogus, that they're not a forgery from the mid-19th century. In defense of the members of the church, this is not the first time that people have 
gone on record saying things that were untrue. Probably most right. most notably, I hate to say this, but Emma Smith had denied polygamy. And so they're used to having people say stuff that's not true. Yeah, and um, you know, there are all the statements in um that were published by Hurlbut or or the Hurlbut gathered that were published in E. D. House and Mormon has been veiled. Um, and of course, there are kernels of truth in there, but a lot of it's just blown way out of proportion, you know, or like the Smith family are like lazy thieves and oh, yes. drunkards and, you know, criminals. So, yeah, the Latter-day Saints are used to persecution that includes um, attacks on their leaders. The Latter-day Saints in the United States of America are, are in an embattled position, right? And so it's very natural for them to question this. And also, it's just the problematic nature of the revelation, right? Here's this guy saying, you know, we told everyone that these were real and we tricked everybody and they're fake. Right out of the gate, that kind of claim like, hey, I lied about this is problematic, right? Is that like, okay, is so, that a lie? Is <laughs> yeah. You lied before? Is this another lie? Or, or you know, it's just kind of plus problematic. It, plus it's late. It's, it's it like, late. If, yeah, if you had said, okay, at this time, we've done this. And we're going to see what happens. It might have been more believable, you think? Yeah, so it's problematic, and 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 uh, it makes sense that it was questioned. So the Latter-day Saints do believe that the Kinderhook plates were translated. But before I ask you how you think those were translated, I want to discuss in more detail some of the history of the episode. More yeah, thoroughly. you bet. Okay? okay. How were you first introduced to the Kinderhook mystery? Okay. And where has that research taken you over the years? Well, it's quite a story, and I can't remember all of it. I'm pretty sure I found out about the Kinderhook plates when I was a freshman in college at Brigham Young University in 1987 or 1988. I thought they were really interesting. And then I think it was on my mission going through this huge stack of old Ensign magazines that I stumbled across an article in the Ensign magazine about the Kinderhook Plates. And then when I came home from my mission in 1990, uh, that's when I started doing research on the Kinderhook Plates because I just, it just thought it was really interesting. It's been three full decades now that I've been doing research on the Kinderhook Plates, bit by bit, uh, in, in, uh, in bursts and, and pauses over the, over the years. We know that Joseph Smith had them for a week. What happened to them, and and how do we know what they look like now? Did they end up in a museum, or did they end up in the family of Wilburn Huguet and Robert Wiley, or where? What happened to these plates? Stan Kimball, who is the one who wrote that article for the Ensign, he actually did a lot of work tracking the plates down and uh, establishing their custodial history. And they they kind of get lost in the, during the Civil War when the museum they're in gets sacked. But there's actually one of these six plates that is not lost. It's in the Chicago History Museum. It's been photographed many times. How we know what they look like, there's kind of three main sources. I'll just go over these real quick. So one is, is the one plate that we have left. Two is um, we have tracings. Of the plates that Joseph Smith had at his house, we have tracings of uh, a tracing from plate in the Journal of William Clayton and another also in the Journal of Brigham Young. 
They're the same size. The tracings are the same size. And they're the same size as the extant plate. So that's a pretty good convergence of measurements that they're all kind of the same size. That's how they're described in the newspaper reports. And then the other main source is that uh, in Nauvoo, John Taylor and Wilfred Woodruff, who are the church apostles running the church printing shop and the church newspapers, they published a broadside that had print facsimiles of all 12 sides of all the six plates. And they're all the same size there. This is really very similar to the print facsimiles that we have that go along with the Book of Abraham. They made a printing plate for each one of the 12 sides of the Kinderhook plates, and they're all the same shape as, as the surviving plate. You talked about the affidavit by Wilburn Fugit, right? Yes. Do we know what Wilburn Fugit and Robert Wiley's motivations were? That just is really a question that kind of is the start of the whole thing. The bottom line is that we don't have a lot of really great information on that because we really don't have anything directly from Wiley. And what we have from Fugit is a few decades later. But Fugit says that he and Wiley were reading Party P. Pratt's book, The Voice of Warning, which is promoting the Book of Mormon. And that it's while they're reading Voice of Warning that they decide to make these fake plates as like a spoof on the Book of Mormon. And what we have from Fugit and from Fugit's sons, this was intended as kind of a prank on the locals, on the on the Kinderhook villagers and, and some of the Latter-day Saints that lived down around there. So, yeah, it wasn't like maybe totally designed to take down Mormonism then. I don't think so. Um, in fact, after the disinterment of the plates, the Mormons want to take the plates up to Nauvoo, and they don't want the plates to go up to Nauvoo. I don't know why. Uh, maybe they're worried about getting caught in that, this that's trick what I would or whatever. Think. Yeah. They're like, well, they're good, but they're not that good. Maybe. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's hard to tell. And Later on, later that year, uh, Robert Wiley is trying to sell them to a museum in Washington, D.C. Maybe they get a little more uh, cocky about that. But there, there's apparently no uh, intention of uh, giving the plates to Joseph Smith or tricking him into trying to translate them. The plates do make it to Nauvoo, and Joseph Smith does translate a portion of them. So in a way, I think the hoax kind of blows up beyond their wildest dreams, you know. But all they ever hear really is that Joseph Smith has plans to translate them. They don't they don't know anything about what William Clayton wrote in his journal that Joseph Smith had translated a portion of them and and what he'd come up with. So yeah, it's kind of uh, interesting just uh how that all works and doesn't doesn't work. So that wasn't printed in the Times and Seasons what William Clayton wrote in his journal. No, that no. Nobody nobody really knew that at the time. At least it wasn't printed. We don't, we don't know anything about that. What happens later is that the uh, church historians are working on the history of Joseph Smith. They use William Clayton's journal because Clayton was so close to Joseph Smith, and his journal is just full of all kinds of really important information about Joseph Smith. So they were using Joseph Smith's own journals, which were kept by Willard Richards. They were using Clayton's journal. Clayton was Joseph Smith's private clerk and other sources, and they just kind of blend them all together into a first-person narrative as if Joseph Smith was writing the whole thing. So what Clayton wrote down about 
present Joseph has translated a portion of the Kinnerick plates and says that they contain this, got used in the manuscript history of Joseph Smith and was written down, I have translated a portion of the Kinnerick plates and they contain. And working with the Joseph Smith papers project, you say this over and over and over again. They wrote history differently. They changed it to the first person all the time. Right. Well, and uh, that started with Joseph Smith in his lifetime mm-hmm. of uh, compiling the sources for his history and, and putting it into a narrative. And then when Joseph Smith was murdered, they were up to about 1838. So they just kept going, and they kept going in the same way. You know, they were publishing that uh, serially in the church newspaper, starting with the Times and Seasons in Nauvoo, and then they started back up again in the Deseret News. So it's in the 1850s. What William Clayton had written in his journal first gets published towards the turn of the century is when B.H. Roberts, the general authority and, and church historian, compiles all of those installments from all the church newspapers into what becomes the official history of the church. In Joseph Smith's voice, it's saying, I translated a portion. Before you get into the deep research of the Kinderhook plates and behind the mystery and what actually happened, you insert this section laying a framework for the story where you talk about hoaxes. Let's talk about that a little bit because I found it fascinating and it does apply to what you found out later in your research. How do successful hoaxes work? One of the common strategies that uh, hoaxers employ is to play on people's hopes and and their beliefs or their devotion to a cherished cause. You know, this is this is exactly what happened with the Kinderick plates because they were they were reading Voice of Warning and what Party B. Pratt was writing about the Golden Plates of the Book of Mormon, and they're like, oh, let's let's make a let's make another set of these and plant them in the ground like the Book of Mormon, like the Golden Plates were in the ground, and then they get this group of uh, locals to go out and dig them up which include a couple of Latter-day Saint men. According to their report, when they pull them up out of the ground, uh, one of the Latter-day Saint men there just starts jumping up and down and, and hollering and, and uh, reportedly says that this is going to prove the Book of Mormon. And that is exactly how the Latter-day Saints used the Kinderhook plates in our literature for you know over a century. Took advantage of the uh, devotion of people to that cause and there, there's several other examples of that, and there's even other examples of that in Mormon history. You know, Mark Hoffman, the famous forger of the late 20th century, collectors would say, hey, if you ever find anything that Joseph Smith wrote from the Carthage jail, let me know, because I'm really interested in that. And then, you know, a few months later, hey, guess what I just found? I, I found this letter from the Carthage jail. And that's a way of people who are engaged in fraudulent behavior will take advantage of others. You talked about this need to kind of prove the Book of Mormon. The Book of Mormon wasn't there because the angel Moroni took it back after it was translated. They really had no way to prove that the translation was real. How big of a need was there to have some kind of material connection between Joseph Smith's ability to translate and physical objects. With the Kinderhook plates themselves, it's clear that the Latter-day Saints were really excited about that because of the, of the broadside. You know, you've got this big broadside 
with uh, all the facsimiles. So they had, you know, someone go through and make all 12 of those woodcuts and then the printing plates. They didn't take the time to carve the wood plates like the Book of Abraham facsimiles, where the negative space is white and the positive space is printed with the ink. They were made quicker because they just carved out the inscriptions. But that's a lot of ink, though, when the inscriptions come out where it's not printed. And so you have, you know, these 12 big black print facsimiles. Yeah, it is. It's black. It's not like outlines. Right, it's the opposite of the Book of Abraham facsimiles. Exactly. I think maybe they learned from that experience. And this is just an advertisement for a YouTube video that Robin Jensen made for the Joseph Smith Papers, where he goes through the Book of Abraham artifacts. I would suggest that to anyone. Those intricate woodcuts were amazing. Just amazing that they went through that. But I I think there's other factors that contributed to the Nauvoo Latter-day Saints receptivity. It kind of tied into the Book of Abraham, too, when they got those scrolls in Kirtland. The prophet had promised that there would be other ancient scriptures that would be revealed. So when things like this came up, they're like, this is it. This is going to be it. Do you think that was part of why they were so receptive to these Kinderhook plates? Yeah, that's right. They were absolutely uh, expecting more scripture to come forth as the as the restoration unfolded. And the fact that someone had found um, inscribed metal plates like the golden plates, you know, this is just great news for them. Another thing that I found extremely interesting when I was reading this chapter is the coincidence that the Kinderhook plates were brought to Joseph during such a busy time in his life, okay? Mm -hmm. 1843, May, tons of things are happening in his life. So it's not like he has time to pour over these documents. So what were some of the things going on in his life in May, 1843? He's such a busy guy all the time, you know, but by this time in his life, he's the president of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, he's the mayor of Nauvoo, he's the lieutenant general of the Nauvoo Legion, he's heavily involved in land transactions, he's heavily involved in contracting new plural marriages at this time. In fact, William Clayton's journal entry about the Kinnerick Plates is from 1843, May 1. And that entry starts with him, William Clayton, marrying Joseph Smith to Lucy Walker the morning of, of his entry on the Kinderick Plates. Yeah, it's it, he continues to be very busy during that time. I, I think it's really interesting with the broadside. Some of the copies of the broadside that are extant are dated June 24th of 1843. And the broadside says... As soon as Joseph Smith translates the Kinderhook plates, we will publish his translation. When Apostles John Taylor and Wilfred Woodruff added that line to the broadside on June 24th, or right before then, uh, Joseph Smith was actually on vacation with his wife, Emma Smith, visiting her sister up in Dixon, Illinois, over 100 miles away. And so he wasn't working on the Kinderhook plates at that time. And in fact, I think it's on the 23rd, that he gets arrested in Dixon. 
And so right when Taylor and Woodruff are saying, as soon as the translation's finished, we'll publish it, he's actually under arrest. And this has to do with Missouri still, right? Right. And if you know the story, he gets apprehended in a very violent way and presses his own charges, and the men who arrested him are arrested. The whole group ends up in Nauvoo on the way to Quincy, and Joseph Smith obtains a habeas corpus hearing and gets released. And so Joseph Smith, at the time when he's supposed to be translating the Kinnerhook Plates, is actually on vacation, and as soon as he gets back to town, he's heavily involved in this big legal problem. And then the uh, PR effort that follows it, because everyone's mad that he gets released on habeas corpus in Nauvoo. He's extremely busy during this period, and he's apparently, uh, to kind of jump ahead on the story here, he apparently translates one character from the top of the Kinderhook plates and never does anything more on it. He intended to do more on the Book of Abraham, but he never gets back to either of those projects. A couple more asides, and then I promise we'll get back to a timeline. Yeah. You noted that the Kinderhook plates were accepted as genuine by at least some non-Mormons. Tell us about that. What did they make of this episode, and what factors could have influenced their acceptance of the plates in the translation? Right. At the very beginning, when uh, Wiley and Fugit make those plates and plant them in the Indian mound, to do their joke, they get a group of people together to go dig in this mound, and they're going to discover these plates. Well, most of the people in that group were not Latter-day Saints. There were a couple Latter-day Saints, and there were at least five or six others. Most of the victims of their prank were not Latter-day Saints from the very beginning. But people did believe that there could be things like this buried in Indian mounds. There, there were things buried in the Indian mounds, and it was common for people to go out and dig about in them and dig stuff up. And it was common to think that the Indians were descended from the House of Israel, right? Yeah, when the Kinder Plates were dug up, everyone who was there who wasn't in on the hoax thought they were real. And the story was first published in the just just a little ways up the river in Quincy, Illinois, in the Quincy Wig. The editors of there thought that the the find was real. And then, uh, of course, in Nauvoo, they thought it was real. And it, it really spread all throughout western Illinois and that region of the United States. There's not really anything in these newspaper reports questioning the veracity or the uh, authenticity of the plates themselves. Now, uh, when it comes to Joseph Smith as the Mormon prophet translating them, the newspapers are kind of aware of this idea or the or that they're being taken there. And, uh, you know, there's lots of little quips and pokes and jabs there, um, like you find in early American newspapers. But in terms of the plates themselves, yeah, they were apparently universally accepted as genuine artifacts. You talked about the hoax being revealed in the 1880s. Right. And being a little kerfuffle, especially in anti-Mormon literature. Not much uh, effect on on the Latter-day Saints. They just thought, oh, this is just another person trying to take our religion down. Mm-hmm. Did it just kind of fade away after that for a while, the whole topic? And if it did, when did it resurface? It's kind of an interesting subject. It's this kind of strange little episode in Mormon history. So it's just kind of up and down over the decades. And then Stan Kimball in 1980 
He got permission from the Chicago Historical Society to have that one plate tested to really undergo some rigorous scientific testing. And there had been some before that. There was a study in the the improvement era, and then there was also uh, a deeper study that was done by Paul Chessman at BYU. But there was definitely some more serious testing that could still be done. Stan Kimball got permission to do some some real uh, rigorous scientific testing on the plates. Now, in terms of the testing, it's important to know how Fugit claimed they made these plates. So he says that they got the village blacksmith to cut out the brass plates. And then he and Wiley made the inscriptions for the characters in beeswax and put acid in the inscriptions and then placed those inscribed beeswax sheets on the plates and then the acid etches out the characters. So that's the claim about how they were made. With uh, ancient plates that are inscribed, those are... Uh, engraved plates where someone uses a stylus or some other tool to actually carve out the metal engraving. So the big question here with the testing was really, are these inscriptions, were they engraved with a tool or were they etched with acid? In the scientific testing, they were able to look at those inscriptions with a scanning electron microscope and tell that they were etched with acid, not engraved with a tool. And with the scanning auger microprobe, they were able to actually recover pieces, uh, particles of the etching acid in the grooves of the inscriptions. So that kind of settled that. But even more important than all of that was they got permission to actually um, take a piece of one of the plates and see, you know, exactly what it's made out of. And it turns out it's a pretty fine brass alloy that's consistent with mid-19th century manufacturing techniques and not like the crude alloys of ancient times. That conclusively showed that the plates were forgeries like Fugit said they were and made the way that he said they were. And Stanley Kimball figured this out. Stanley Kimball is the one who arranged for this testing to be done. And he's the one who published the results of that testing in the Ensign Magazine, which is the official magazine of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. That was in 1981, and that kind of settled the question. Another point that Kimball makes, along with showing that the plates are fake, he makes the point that the characters on the plates are also spurious. So the characters are not copied from real Egyptian characters or real Chinese characters or any other real kinds of characters. They don't represent language at all, in fact. You know, language has, like, patterns of repetition and, you know, clusters of words that appear together in certain frequencies. And there's nothing like that in in these characters. Apparently, Fugit and Wiley just made up these characters on the spot. So the plates themselves are bogus, and the characters on the plates are bogus. But what was really interesting, and maybe you're going here uh, next, is that coincidentally, at about the same time that he was having the testing done, is when it was discovered that the William Clayton Journal was the actual source of what was in the history of the church about Joseph Smith translating a portion of the Kinnerig Plates. So for all these years, we basically thought that 
somewhere, we couldn't find it, but we thought somewhere Joseph Smith had actually written down, I translated a portion of the Kinderig Plates. The Journal of William Clayton was in the First Presidency Vault, and nobody had access to it. But in the, I think it was in the late 70s, Jim Allen and uh, Dean Jesse and Richard Anderson got access to the Clayton Journal, and they shared with Stan Kimball that they had found the source uh, for the material on the Kinderig Plates in the history of the church. So right when Stan Kimball was able to confirm, okay, yes, actually these plates are fake. At the same time, he finds out what the real source is behind the history of the church. What he does with that is, uh, in his article, he shows, hey, this wasn't Joseph Smith that wrote this. It was William Clayton. And he says there's rumors going around in Nauvoo about the Kinnerick plates. And William Clayton is probably just reporting rumor. And it's probably inaccurate rumors. And in conclusion, Joseph Smith actually didn't translate from the Kinderic plates. So that's what you get in the Stan Kimball article. He shows that the plates actually are fake. And at the same time, he argues that Joseph Smith never did translate them. Okay, now let's talk about the eyewitnesses. Okay. Because we know that the entry now, because of Stanley Kimball's work in the history of the church came from William Clayton's journal, but he was not the only person who wrote about Kinderhook plates. So let's talk about the other eyewitnesses. Okay. And some of the evidence you examined in your study. Who was Charlotte Haven, and what did she write about the Kinderhook plates? There's basically five main sources on Joseph Smith's translation of the Kinderhook plates, and this is an important one, and she's always quoted in, in anything substantial that's written about the Kinderick Plates. Her full name was Charlotte Ann Haven. She was from Portsmouth, New Hampshire. She was visiting her brother, who had married a Mormon girl and had moved to Nauvoo. So she was living in Nauvoo with him. And Charlotte, she went and visited Mother Smith and saw the mummies and wrote about that in one of her letters, because she's, she's got this fantastic collection of letters that she writes back home. And then later, she sees the Kinderhook plates. So what happens is she has an acquaintance with a man named Joshua Moore, who's from Philadelphia, and uh, was apparently boarding at the Quincy House in Quincy, Illinois at the time. And uh, Haven herself had spent some time in Quincy and probably met him there. But when he comes up to Nauvoo, he comes and visits Charlotte Haven, and he has the Kinderhook plates with him, and he shows them to her. He also tells her that when he showed them to Joseph Smith, that Joseph Smith said that uh, he thought that by revelation he could translate these plates. At least that's how Charlotte tells the story. We don't know exactly what Joseph Smith actually said, and we don't know exactly what Joshua Moore said that he said, but we do have what Charlotte Haven said that Joshua Moore said that Joseph Smith said. According to Charlotte Haven, Joseph Smith said that he thought that with the help of Revelation, he could translate these plates. So do we just take that point blank as being accurate? Because I've read Charlotte Haven's account of visiting the mummies, and there's obvious inaccuracies in what she's written. Right. She's really interesting. Her letters, they're just fantastic. I mean, they're so fun to read. She's, she, you know, she's, she has some literary flair. 
And actually, most of what she writes is accurate, but we can show that some of the things she writes are not. Yeah, so we we can't take it uh, absolutely at face value. Okay, you mentioned five eyewitnesses. Yeah. Who else? I think Parley P. Pratt wrote something. Parley P. Pratt, on 1843, May 7, writes a letter to one of his cousins, John Van Cott, in New York. And he t- he writes about how the Kinnerick plates were found and describes the plates a little bit. And then he says that these plates contain the genealogy of the person with whom they were found. And he was a Jaredite and he was a descendant of Ham. So he agrees there with William Clayton that these uh, plates have to do with the individual with whom they were found because the plates had been planted in this mound next to a skeleton that was in the mound. Well, that explains the descendant of Ham a little better if it comes through the Jaredite, because otherwise it's kind of random. Right. And, and you know, the Book of Mormon is very clear that the Lehites and the Mulekites, they're all Israelites, which in Mormon scripture, especially after the Book of Abraham is published in 1842, you know, the, the, the Israelite lineage is separate from the lineage of Ham. So it makes much more sense in terms of associating these plates with the Book of Mormon peoples, which would be really natural to do for the early Latter-day Saints, right? It makes much more sense to classify this descendant of Ham with the Jaredites than with the Lehites. Okay, you have two more. You said you had five. What are the other two? Okay, so uh, the first of those would be the Joseph Smith Journal, kept by Apostle Willard Richards, who is his private secretary and historian. Willard Richards is the one keeping Joseph Smith's journal at the time. In the entry for 1843, May 7, Richards writes that Joseph Smith was visited by several gentlemen who were interested in uh, the Kinderhook plates. So the story about the Kinderhook plates broke in the Quincy Whig on May 3rd. So that newspaper probably would have reached Nauvoo on like the 4th or the 5th or the 6th or something like that. And on the 7th, Joseph Smith is visited in, in Nauvoo um, by these several gentlemen who are interested in the Kinderhook plates. And that term gentleman is interesting because I, I did some research on that, on how that word is used in the Joseph Smith papers and how it's used by Willard Richards specifically in Joseph Smith's journals. And uh, that basically indicates that he's talking about non-members. Because when it's Latter-day Saints, he'll usually say, like, brother so-and-so or sister so-and-so, or he'll, call, or he'll say, you know, Bishop Partridge, or Bishop Whitney, or Elder so-and-so. And when he talks about gentlemen, he's usually talking about people who are not members of the church. So apparently these are men in Nauvoo coming to visit Joseph Smith, and they're not Latter-day Saints. In that same journal entry, Willard Richards, uh, it seems that he's there, and he also mentions... William Smith, the brother of Joseph Smith, and all, and one of his fellow apostles in the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles. Of course, we have William Clayton. When you are studying this closely and examining it, what did you learn about the entry? This is kind of one of the really neat things, I think, about this chapter on the Kinnerick Plates that's published in the book Producing Ancient Scripture. Even when Stan Kimball published his article on the Kinnerick Plates and was able to quote from William Clayton's journal, he did quote the most relevant part of William Clayton's journal entry about the Kinnerick Plates. 
but he didn't or maybe wasn't able to or maybe even didn't have access to the full journal entry. And nobody else has uh, until now. So this is the first time that anyone's been able to have access to the Clayton Journal and produce the entire entry for 1843 May 1. And uh, we did that. We reproduced the uh, the entire entry in transcript and also have a photographic facsimile of the entire entry. This is important for a few reasons. One is that you can see there the tracing of the plate that William Clayton made in his journal, which is actually really important because it shows us that William Clayton on May 1st was in Joseph Smith's house. We know that the plates were there. We know that Clayton had access to the plates there because of the tracing in his journal. We know that he had his journal there with him. And the other things in the journal apparently written at the same time. This is important because, like, for example, with Joseph Smith's journal, we know that a lot of times it's behind. Right? It's a few days behind or even a couple weeks behind. And um, they're keeping a daily record in it, but it's not always day of. We have every reason to think that what is written there is accurate. So that's all great stuff. But you still haven't gotten to the bottom of the mystery, really. So did you have any big breaks in your research? Yes. I'd say we kind of have had three big breaks, Don and I. One was getting access to the Clayton Journal, which we just talked about. For the other two, the first was in 1996, shortly after I presented on the Kinnerig Plates at the Mormon History Association. I was going through the grammar and alphabet of the Egyptian language, which is one of the Egyptian language study documents that Joseph Smith and others produce when they're trying to figure out the Egyptian that's on the papyri associated with the Book of Abraham. It's kind of written in a lexicon style, so in the left-hand column it has Egyptian characters from the papyri. And then adjacent to that, it has definitions or explanations that are written in English. And one of these definitions matches what William Clayton wrote that Joseph Smith said about the content of the translated portion of the Kinderhook plates. When I read that definition, I immediately recognized the similarity there. I'd just been working on the Kinderhook plates and just presented on the Kinderhook plates, so it just popped right out. Well, a few months after that, I got a call from my good friend Don Bradley, and he had stumbled across the same thing. When I found it, I was reading the the edition by Fred Collier, which is a typescript, you know, publication, and he didn't try to reproduce the characters. It's just the English script. So I read the definition and, and recognized that. But Don, when he found it, he was looking at the photocopy of the microfilm that was published by the Tanners. So when he ran across that definition, he was also looking at the character that that the definition defined. And then he went to the Kinderhook plates and tried to find a match for this character and found a pretty good match on the top of one of the plates. This basically showed how Joseph Smith translated a portion of the Kinderhook plates. He looked at this one prominent character at the top of one of the plates and went through his grammar and alphabet of the Egyptian language and found a similar character and found the definition that went with that character. And it kind of fits into his scriptural worldview, right? 
it doesn't like give a name of a person like Mormon or Moroni or Abraham or Joseph or something like that. But uh, the definition uh, is about a person, and it's a descendant of Ham through the loins of Pharaoh. And that's what William Clayton said Joseph Smith found out about the plates. Um, this is basically showed how Joseph Smith came up with this translation. He came up with it kind of in a secular translation style. When Don shared this with me, I took a really good look at, at the photographs that we have of the extant plate and also with the print facsimiles from the broadside. And all the plates have kind of a general pattern. Each side of each plate has a horizontal line kind of going through the top, middle-ish top part of it. And up above the line, you have illustrative figures. Uh, mostly these are like shining suns that have smiley faces inside of them. And then you also have like some plants and a few other things like that. Below the line, most of the plates have four columns of characters. So all the plates have this kind of general pattern. But if you look at, look at all the facsimiles, there is one plate where the horizontal line is much lower than the others. And so the heading part, like above the line, is much larger compared to the others. The other thing that's different about this side of this plate is that almost all of the sides of the plates, like I said, in the top, they have these illustrative figures. But on this plate that has the larger heading, instead of having illustrated figures, it has two large characters. And they're much larger than the other characters that you have in the columns below. So I guess your thing is like, well, if your eye is going to catch a character, it'll probably catch the bigger one. Is that what you're thinking? Yeah, that's what I'm getting at. If you pretend you're Joseph Smith, you know, mm -hmm. and you get these six plates. We, like we've talked about, Joseph Smith is very interested in languages, right? And this is a super important point that I forgot to mention. In the Joseph Smith Journal, Willard Richards writes that when these men come to talk to him about the Kinneric plates, a Hebrew lexicon is sent for. So that again suggests a secular approach to translation. So anyway, yeah, if you're looking at the Kinneric plates and you're trying to find a place to start, if you're going to try a translation, where are you going to start, right? Well, Hebrew and Egyptian and Greek and every other English and all the other languages Joseph Smith has knows or has studied, they and, all read top to bottom. Yeah. So any, it makes sense Anything to with characters. At the top. And this is where a good visual would help, but we could maybe put it in our show notes. Yeah. So the character, it's not like something bizarre. It looks like what everybody would imagine a Jaredite barge to look like. It's just a, it's a little half ship looking character. Yeah, or a half moon. Kind of resembles a ship. So, I mean, it's like, oh, it's very recognizable. It's like, okay, that's a distinct half circle or ship or whatever. Maybe that was in the lexicon that we made back in the Gale. I don't know. Yeah, I, that's where I'm going with this. I think if you really look carefully at the plates, like it, like you would if you were trying to find a place to start translating, it's not just a random 1 in 12 chance that you would start with this side of this plate. Um, it has a larger heading. The heading has characters instead of illustrated figures, and it has really large characters. So the, the top character, if Joseph Smith were to start with that one, well, you go a few pages into the Egyptian grammar book, and there's a character that looks very similar to that, and the definition that is provided for that character matches what 
William Clayton wrote about Joseph Smith's translation. From this, it's pretty clear that this is how Joseph Smith came up with this translated portion, as William Clayton calls it. Clayton calls it a portion. It turns out it's actually this one single character, this single prominent character from the top of one of the plates. Now, what really kind of seals the deal on all of this is the fifth and final source that we haven't talked about yet. Should we talk about that? Yeah, because okay. I, I thought it was so interesting. As a history student, I was like, oh my gosh, I know how much work went into finding this source. You guys are amazing. So let's talk about it. Okay. This was the third of the three breakthroughs I was talking about, and Don found this one too. Uh, he was going through newspaper databases, early American newspaper databases, and doing searches and he found a letter that was written from Nauvoo to the New York Herald, uh, one of the big New York newspapers. It's signed with the pseudonym A Gentile, and it's about the Kinnerug plates. That's really interesting. And the date of the letter is 1843, May 7. So this is the same day that Joseph Smith is visited by several gentlemen who are apparently not members of the church. And that very same day, there's this letter from someone who identifies himself as a Gentile living in Nauvoo, talking about looking at the Kinnerhead Plates with Joseph Smith. And that's the same day as the letter that Party P. Pratt writes to his cousin, where Pratt writes about the Kinnerhead Plates. What does a Gentile have to say about uh, looking at the Kinnerhead Plates with Joseph Smith? He says that in his presence, he saw Joseph Smith using his Egyptian alphabet book to compare characters on the Kinnerug plates with characters in the Egyptian alphabet book. And he says the characters, there seem to be matches, and therefore it seems that Joseph Smith will be able to decipher the in inscriptions. And so that confirmed what we had found earlier, and especially what Don had figured out earlier, that this is how Joseph Smith translated or mistranslated the Kinnerug plates. He found this matching character in the Egyptian alphabet book and used the definition provided for that character to come up with a translation of this one character. And that translation kind of gives you the idea that, yeah, it, this is the writings of the person whose skeleton was found with the plates, and he's a descendant of Ham. So it kind of situates the author a little bit. There's actually a little parallel there with the Egyptian papyri, because when Joseph Smith first acquires the Egyptian papyri in 1835, and before he really starts his translation of the Book of Abraham as we have it, he looks at the papyri and he does uh, a little bit of translating, perhaps. But either way, he, he's able to determine that these papyri scrolls belong to Abraham and Joseph, or they contain the writings of Abraham and Joseph. So the very first thing with the papyri is kind of like, what's written here and by whom? If you look at the Book of Mormon, the title page of the Book of Mormon says, the Book of Mormon, written by the hand of Mormon, right? So it kind of tells you like who it's associated with. You know, this is a history of the Nephites and the Lamanites and the Jaredites. So the definition that Joseph Smith found in the Egyptian alphabet book, it doesn't give a name like Mormon or Moroni or Abraham or Joseph, but it does, it is about a person. Based on what Joseph Smith had done with the Book of Mormon and the Book of Abraham, it kind of fit into that pattern and made sense, like, oh, well, this this is working. 
That's fascinating. I hadn't connected the dots even after reading your chapter break again. So what does this all mean? Yes, so what does this all mean? Well, a few things. One is that I think it definitely is time for everyone to accept that Joseph Smith did think that he had translated a portion of the Kinetic Plates like William Clayton wrote, or at least apparently only one character. But this isn't really a quantitative issue. It's a qualitative issue, whether Joseph Smith translated or not. So even if he translated only one character, that means he mistranslated from the Kinetic Plates or believed he had, or at least presented it that way to other people. The first thing I'd say is it's it's probably time for all Latter-day Saints to kind of accept that because up until now, um, a lot of people have been basically following Stan Kimball's interpretation that Clayton didn't know what he was talking about and Joseph Smith didn't actually translate from the Kinnerick Plates. So he apparently did translate or believe that he had translated this one character. And secondly... I think the most important thing is that from everything we can gather about this, this was a, a secular attempt to translate, and that it was done so openly among both church members and non-members. And one of the reasons I think Stan Kimball and others don't want to think that Joseph Smith translated from the Kinnerick Plates is because since they're bogus plates, it doesn't make sense that Joseph Smith would translate them. But Number one, there's two big problems with that. The first one is, it's kind of assuming that Joseph Smith could never be tricked. And Joseph Smith never claimed that he was perfect, or that he knew everything, or even that he could never be tricked. He believed in the gifts of the Spirit, you know, the gift of prophecy, the gift of translation, and that includes the gift of discernment. He taught that a prophet is only a prophet when he is acting as such. When you're not acting as a prophet, you're not a prophet. And when you're not acting as a translator, you're not a translator. And if you don't have the gift of discernment at that exact moment, then you don't have the gift of discernment. You know, we know that Joseph Smith even, uh, we know he didn't think he had like some perfectly continuous gift of discernment because after the, when he was in jail in Missouri, he, he wrote that he had been tricked into being captured and, and said, you know, we were deceived. So Joseph Smith didn't consider himself above being deceived. You know, it's very natural for us to think, of, when we think of Joseph Smith as a translator, to think of him as a prophetic, revelatory translator. Of course, right? Because of the Book of Mormon and the Book of Abraham and the Joseph Smith translation of the Bible. What, the reason Joseph Smith is important in history, and especially important to Latter-day Saints, is because he was a prophet, and he was a revelator, and he was a translator. And so it's only natural when we think of him to think of him in that way, and doing translation in that way. And how could he do a revelatory translation of the bogus kinderhook plates? But that's not the whole story. It's not the full picture. And if we study Joseph Smith's life in detail, then it's very, very clear that he has his own personal interest in language, and even academic interest in language. He takes a class in Hebrew. So in 1829, he translates the Book of Mormon, and he does it, as he says, by the gift and power of God. But also, in 1835, he takes a Hebrew class, and uh, he's just trying to learn Hebrew along with everybody else in the class, and they hired a Jewish professor to teach them in their Hebrew school, and he has Hebrew manuals, and he's studying, and they're doing course work, and they're doing class exercises, and some of their exercises 
are translating the Old Testament from Hebrew into English. Now, in addition to Joseph Smith having translated by the gift and power of God, here we have him in class translating from Hebrew to English using a Hebrew lexicon and doing ordinary, traditional, scholarly, academic translation. So both of those kinds of translation are part of Joseph Smith's life. Now we come to the Kinderic Plates. Well, which one is it? It's really natural if you don't know a lot about Joseph Smith to just assume, oh, it must have been revelatory translation, but we can't have that because these are bogus plates. Well, now with the Egyptian Grammar and Alphabet book and the William Clayton Journal and the Pratt letter and the Emmons letter, when we put that all together, we can see everything is pointing to Joseph Smith doing a secular translation and doing so openly in the presence of church members and non-members. It kind of removes this problem from our history. The way I see it, it kind of solves this problem in Mormon history. Going beyond that, I would also add that it kind of gives us a little bit of insight into Joseph Smith's scriptural worldview, right? Because, and we talked about this a little bit earlier, because when he reads that definition, when he, he finds that mashing character in the Egyptian grammar book, and then when he reads the associated definition that goes with that character, when it talks about a person who's a descendant of Ham that kind of fits into the experiences he's had with other ancient records, for him to like read that definition and say, oh yeah, this, this is working. This translation is working. I mean, that kind of, that's a glimpse into how his view of the world and world history, you know, has this kind of scriptural tone to it. Uh, that, those are my major takeaways from studying the Kinderhook Plates. That's not the first time you've written about the Kinder Hook Plates. Every time it is so fascinating because it's like a mystery that you unfold piece by piece and you're kind of on the edge of your seat. Well, thank you for saying that. And I just wanted to add for listeners, if, if they're interested in uh, going beyond this podcast to read the chapter, um, we di really did try to drill down on these five key sources. Um, in fact, there's a separate section in the chapter for each one of these sources. And each one of those sections has an introduction to the source. It has a full transcript of the relevant information in the source and then some document analysis, and then historical implications. Yeah, it, it was interesting. Thank it, you. It was so great. It was a great way to end your book. Oh, thank you. So it's like, okay, what's <laughs> this going to be at the end of the book of, all, you know, all these translation projects and then a mistranslation project. Yeah, yeah. Well, in terms of the, that chapter ending the book, it is, it is interesting to me in this regard. So the the very first chapter in that book, in terms of the, and it's in chronological order, right, is about the uh, Anthon transcript, the Anthon episode. And so at the very, very beginning, before Joseph Smith even starts his, his real translation of the Book of Mormon, you have this idea about, or or maybe at least, you have this idea about the golden plates being translated in a secular fashion by an academic translator. And then, of course, that's not how it goes. And Joseph Smith translates the whole Book of Mormon as a prophetic translator. But then later, like with the Joseph Smith translation, 
It starts out with that Moses material and the Enoch material with these huge revelatory expansions, but then later on they're doing things like harmonizing the four Gospels and, you know, dealing with some intricate, like, grammatical uh, situations and so on. And then in 1835, you've got the Book of Abraham and revelatory translation there, but you've also got the Egyptian language study, right? And Joseph Smith trying to learn Hebrew. Later in the Book of Abraham, you know, it's clear that the base text is King James Version Genesis, and that Joseph Smith is using his Hebrew textbooks there. And then you get to the Kinnerig plates at the end of the book, and um, it's almost as if Joseph Smith has reached a point where you know, he's not the master of languages that he wants to be, but he does have some rudimentary proficiency in Hebrew and has done some study in German and Greek and Latin and other languages. And uh, he's apparently reached this point where he's like, we don't need to send these to Charles Anthon. Like, I can do that. Like, he becomes the Charles Anthon <laughs> and does this completely secular translation on the Kinder Plate. So it's, it's really kind of an interesting way to end the book. I'm not sure exactly how that all sits with me, but uh, I think it is an interesting chapter to conclude the book with. It was great. Thank you, Mark, for sharing some more time with us. Thank you for having me. Be sure to check out LDSperspectives.com to subscribe, catch up on past episodes, download transcripts, and find show notes. LDS Perspectives podcast is not affiliated with The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. The opinions expressed represent the views of the guests or the podcasters alone. While the ideas presented may vary from traditional understandings or teachings, they in no way reflect criticism of LDS church leaders, policies, or practices.